1: Welcome back to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, just some quick notes. I want to remind you guys to check us out on all the social media sites, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. You'll find us all over the place. Get to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. It doesn't have to be a lengthy review, but all the reviews help. It certainly gets the word of the podcast out there and lets us know what you guys like and what you don't like. Reminder, our website is up, hazardground.com. You'll get more pics, more bios, more information on all of our guests plus previous episodes are also on the website as well so check that out before we get to this week's episode I want to remind you that it is brought to you by our newest sponsor on it on its mission is to inspire peak performance through a combination of unique products and actionable information combining bleeding edge science and earth-grown nutrients and time-tested strategies from top athletes and medical professionals Onnit is dedicated to providing their customers with supplements, food, and fitness equipment aimed at helping people achieve a new level of well-being they call total human optimization. it was founded in 2010 with an idea to make cutting-edge nutritional supplement combinations. In July of 2011, Onnit released... Alpha Brain, its flagship cognitive enhancer, and hasn't looked back since. Eventually embracing the concept of total human optimization, Onnit has added unique nutrient-dense foods and functional strength fitness equipment to provide key assets to the mind and body that they can utilize. Again, Every Hazard Ground sponsor is a product that we've used and stand by 100%. Otherwise, you wouldn't waste your time talking about it for the episode. So get on over to our website, HazardGround.com, and check out the sponsors. That's HazardGround.com slash sponsors. Click on the Onnit banner and try Onnit today. Remember, support for our sponsors goes right back into the Hazard Ground, making it the best show it can possibly be. Again, that's HazardGround.com slash sponsors. Click on the Onnit banner and discover the Onnit difference today. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground podcast, he has served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a former Marine captain, also the recipient of a Silver Star, a Bronze Star for Valor, and a Purple Heart. He's currently an author of two books, including Green on Blue and the other Dark at the Crossing. He is Elliot Ackerman here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Elliot, welcome. Thank you for being here.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So, yours is an incredible story. Um, you know, you've been traveling the world essentially uh, since your time in the military, uh, covering. I guess, conflicts and everything else and writing about them. obviously, you know, a novelist now. But uh, let's go back to the beginning and tell us how you got your start in the military and why you signed up.
0: Uh, Well, I did ROTC in college. So I did Navy ROTC and wound up as a Marine Corps officer. Uh, And, you know, I think I just I wanted to have a job when I got out of college where whether I was good at my job or bad at my job really mattered. Uh, I wanted to have responsibility at a relatively young age, um, and, you know, I'd always sort of had this uh, innate interest in the military. So kind of all those things combined uh, led me into the Marine Corps. Uh, but, I, you know, I started ROTC pre-9-11, so 9-11 happened my last year of college. So uh, as I was heading out the door, you know, as a newly minted second lieutenant, everything had become very real in a way it wasn't when I, you know, started as a freshman in college.
1: It's funny you mention that. I've told this story several times on the podcast. I did the same thing. I, you know, I, uh, I was commissioned in ninety nine, and I remember going through job fairs senior year. Well, I didn't go through them, but all my classmates were going through them, and they said, "Why aren't you going to the job fair?" I said, "I got to go in the army when I get out." I did ROTC like you did, and they looked at me and said, well, "Why don't you get a real job?" And of course, you know, we know that nine eleven made all of our jobs real.
0: Yeah, you know, I had. Uh you know, I, my, my brother went to school in the same city as I did. And I remember I roomed with him and some of his friends one year and he had this one friend of his who, you know, one afternoon was like, why are you going in the Marines? You know, you're never going to do anything. I mean, you know, we just win wars now. They just, they're so quick. I mean, look at the Persian Gulf war I mean, we're never going to go to war again. It just seems like, Oh, he was like, it seems like a waste of time. You're not going to do anything. You know, that was like in yeah, 1999 or 2000. So, um, so, you know, the environment that I kind of came in in was very, very different than the environments that I went out in.
1: Yeah, and remember, Kosovo was fought from 35,000 feet. You know, whatever we did, we did through the air. Um, And so we weren't really combat-oriented at that point in time. But again, obviously, all that changed after 9-11. Let me ask you, so you get your commission, where are you, and what's first for you as far as the military is concerned?
0: Um, So I got my commission, and I went where, you know, all newly minted Marine lieutenants go to Quantico and uh, went through the basic school there, which is six months, and then uh, was designated as an infantry officer. And so I went to the infantry officer's course. You know that was sort of an interesting time too, because when I showed up, I showed up in June of 2003 to Quantico. And so the Iraq invasion had just happened. And the, the school there had this real sort of atmosphere amongst the captains for our instructors of, you know, hey, guys, listen, the war happened. You guys have all missed it. We missed it too. But, you know, what are you going to do? And then after like a month or two, some sort of senior first lieutenants started trickling back and they were guys who'd been in the invasion. So we got to kind of like talk to them. You know, they all had combat action ribbons, which was like, you know, very exotic to us. Um, and I remember that August, the front page of the Marine Times was a headline, Marines back to Iraq. And everybody was saying, well, what the hell are we going back to Iraq for? Iraq's just occupation duty and Marines don't do occupation duty. Um, so there was all that conversation. actually, you know, I got the infantry battalion I was assigned to in December of 2003, and I was assigned to go to 1st Battalion, 1st Marine Regiment. And they allowed us, if we wanted to, and that was in San Diego. And they allowed us, if you wanted to, to switch amongst your classmates assignments for the infantry officers. They gave you, like, it was like a 24-hour period. If you wanted to switch with someone, you were allowed to, uh, which I don't think they do anymore. And there was this guy... And his whole family was in san diego and all he wanted to do was go to san diego and i orders to go to first battalion first marines but they weren't going to iraq they were going out on a you know on a on a deployment with the navy on a marine expeditionary unit to like the south pacific and i really wanted to go to iraq but he had orders to go to first battalion eighth marines in camp lejeune so i had this like you know dark night of the soul wrestling like am i going to give up living in san diego to go live in lejeune in north carolina but that means I get to go to Iraq. And so, um, and I remember talking to one of the captains uh, at the basic school about my decision. I was like, hey, do I trade with this guy? Or do I not? You know, this one, you they're doing a Mew. And he said to me, and I quote, he said, the Mew, Elliot, is always going to be the cutting edge of the Marine Corps. What the fuck do you want to go to Iraq for? All you're going to do in Iraq is occupation duty. So it was, it was the best advice I never took. I actually wound up switching with that guy, and I went to 1A. And then 18 was on the first thing, smoking over to Iraq. We left, we left that in June, so June of 2004. Um, but I remember you know, while I was at, at the entry officer course, you know, that, the very first group of Marines landed in Iraq in March of 2004. And, um, and there was a guy in the class before ours. I remember one morning we woke up, and it was like late March of 2004. And our instructors had gone out, and they got them like whatever it was, you know, 30 copies of The Washington Post, one for each barracks room. They left it on our front porch, on our front stoops. And the cover of the Washington Post that day was two Marines carrying another Marine in a body bag through the streets of Ramadi. And, um, you know, and that was like, in Mark, that was when it really became real. Uh, when Ramadi, the first Ramadi, first Fallujah happened, a guy who was in the class before ours got killed. They sent one of my friends to be a combat replacement. Um, you know, I remember they, they brought Jim Webb in to talk to us and him making the point, he said, you know, you guys are the first class of infantry officers to graduate out of Quantico since Vietnam, knowing that you're going to combat. Um, so, you know, now it kind of seems quaint, but at that time, it was like very portentous, this idea that, you know, suddenly the war was on and we were all going to be a part of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's funny. We hear so many of those stories on the podcast about the twists of fate and these small decisions. And this doesn't even just, you know, the, the war on terror. This goes back to guys we've interviewed from Vietnam and even the, the Gulf War, you know, these small little you know, decisions that seem innocuous at the time that end up being, you know, the catalyst for the entire, you know, crux of their military career. Um, You know, it's, 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 it just ends up happening. Same thing happened to me. I mean, during my first deployment, it was one of those things where I just got lucky with my assignment. I got lucky that I got chosen to lead this small little force, but I ended up getting attached to the special forces. And Mm -hmm. I, I tell people repeatedly that if you laid out all the assignments for a captain in Iraq, in 2005 and asked me to pick one. I couldn't have picked a better one on my own. I mean, it was just, it was one of those yeah. fortuitous circumstances. And to this day, you know, I've been in almost 19 years. I look back on it and it's still the best part of my military career. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 the military has a way of taking care of you like that. It's uh, it's kind of funny. All right. So you get over to Iraq. What's your first mission? Uh, wh- what are you doing? Where are you? Give us the lowdown.
0: Well, I mean, I remember getting there. So it was June of 2004 and the Co- coalition provisional authority was, you know, just disbanding. And the Iraqis were taking over. Um, in theory. You know, in theory, in theory. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, it was just a different time. I remember going out on my first, you know, left seat, right seat ride, or turning over with this one rifle platoon that had been from 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. They'd been there for, like, three or four months. They'd fought in the first Fallujah battle, and they had all those stories. And we were, the, you know, we were the green guys showing up. And um, and I remember going and I'm hopping in the back of this high back Humvee, and they built like center line seating in the Humvee. So there's like a bench in the middle, and then all the Marines are stacking up cases of MREs and bottles of and cases of water on the outside of the high back. I'm like, Why are you guys stacking the food there? Like, well, they have these things called IEDs. And if the IED goes off, it'll hit the MREs and the water instead of us. You know, so that was like your armor back then. I mean, there was like nothing. I remember that. So those days. Um, yeah. yeah. So it was really everything was jerry rigged together. But you know, at first we were, you know, we were patrolling, we uh, our battalion won a um, we were attached to the 1st Marine Division, and we were the only East Coast 2nd Marine Division battalion uh, attached to them. So we were sort of like – they kind of gave us the least imp- – one of the least important areas of operations. But what that, meant, what that meant was it actually wound up being kind of a good thing because anytime something flared up around al and they needed more more Marines, we were always the one They're like, well, you know, 1-8 not doing much out by Al-Assad, so we'll pull 1-8. So we were always get pulled. So we kind of wound up like as a fire brigade. So we moved around quite a bit. So I was in Haditha when I first got there. Then I went outside of Fallujah for a chunk of that summer. Then we were back up in you know Haditha and Hawwania, Rawa, hit all these places around Al Anbar. And then we came back in the fall of '04 when they for the uh, for the second Fallujah battle.
1: And for those civilians listening who aren't familiar, El Anbar province uh, in, in Iraq is about, uh, you know, about 90 minutes directly west of Baghdad. Uh, once you get to Fallujah Ramadi, which everybody kind of knows about if you're a civilian, that's about 30, 45 minutes west of Baghdad. El Ambar is just a more open area to the west of that um, that, uh, you know, was a big Marine staging ground for the most part. Right. I mean, most of the Marines spent uh, their, their staging base in Iraq in in the Anbar province.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The Marines sort of owned all Ambar.
1: And it's funny i mean you know i don't know how long you were there for your first deployment the marines deployments are a little bit shorter but when you talk about anbar and, and fallujah ramadi i i went there once and i remember it was the scariest part for me leaving baghdad and going that way because it was always where, it was the hottest zone at the time you know you go 04 and 05 because really it was weird when you when you look back in the iraq war so we had the initial invasion that was like all of 2003 and once that died down 04, there was kind of like this little bit of a lull, right? Because no one really knew what to do next. And then towards the end of 04 and 05 is when the, you know, the insurgency really started in earnest and violence really started to pick up. And all of 05 out in Anbar and, and Fallujah and Ramadi was hell. I mean, it was, it was the most dangerous place in Iraq. Uh,
0: yeah. You know, it was, I mean, the thing that's interesting about the Iraq wars, I mean, there's definitely chapters of it. And so the, you know, when I was there for most of 04 and a little bit of 05, um, you know, there was a lot of like direct fighting, like it would like there were ambushes and they would be shooting at you from the palm grove and you'd be shooting at them, you know, and there was Fallujah, which was a whole set piece battle. So in many ways, it kind of fit into a more traditional conception of war. I mean, even though it was a guerrilla war. Um, but then you get to, you know, you talk to guys who are there like in 06 and 07 and 08. Yeah. Um, and that stuff didn't happen anymore. It was all just IEDs, but like colossal, catastrophic IEDs. Um, You know, like I've been in a vehicle that was hit with an IED in 04, and we were all fine. Like, I think the turret gunner, you know, got his bell rung a little bit, but everyone was fine. Whereas in 06, I mean, if if you're the vehicle that's hit with an IED, I mean, that's it. You're done. Good night, Irene. Like, you know, people aren't walking away from those IED strikes. Um, So that, you know, so that had changed.
1: And, And the funny part is a lot of people don't realize, you know, civilians, you know, back who weren't there, the constant, uh, I guess, chess match between the enemy and us, like, you know, they realized very quickly they couldn't stand toe-to-toe to us, right? They couldn't stand in palm groves and start shooting at us. They would get run over. Like, they just didn't stand a chance that way. So they had to find a different way to fight. And then constantly, even the IEDs in and of themselves, they got more complex, they got bigger, they got stronger. Every time we would put a new plate of armor on or a new <laughs> way to, to avoid an IED, they would come up with something different. And then literally, that was went on for a four- or five-year period.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and they had help, too. So, yeah, the Iranians helping them and other people helping. Them. So, um, but yeah, so no, but it, I think it was, yes, it was a con, you know, the war there was constantly. Evolving.
1: So tell me about that, that first deployment, as far as when you look back on it, was it what you expected? I mean, do you feel like it was one of those things where you had this preconceived notion going in, uh, and you left with something totally different? Or was, was everything you thought it was going to be?
0: You know, I remember at a certain point, my company commander, you know, who's still in, is on active duty, and is a full colonel now. It's you know one of the greatest guys I ever worked for. It's a really sort of low key guy. But I remember he grabbed me, and it was at the end of the Fallujah battle, and you know, and we'd been like, you know, we'd had a, kind of a rough go of it. You know, uh, you know, two of the lieutenants in my company, you know, had gotten, you know, one of been killed, one of been hurt pretty badly. You know, you know, we had a lot of wounded Marines. You know, so we were sort of at that moment, that inflection moment, like you know, a month and a half after the battle, we're just like a lot of guys weren't there anymore. So it was sort of pointing and I remember he looked at us, me and a buddy of mine who was actually my roommate from IOC, uh, which is you know my training in Quantico, and he said, you know, you two guys are the luckiest guys and the unluckiest guys in the Marine Corps. He said you're the luckiest guys because you went right out of the gate, and your first deployment was this. You know which is the you know biggest battle the you know biggest urban battle the marine corps fought since way city in vietnam he said but you're the unluckiest guys because nothing you ever do in the marine corps is going to compare to this <laughs> uh and he was true and you know i mean it was he was right it was true um so uh you know the you ask me like expectations i mean in some respects it fit my expectations because i you know i had uh you know and feel very privileged to have had that experience of, Like being a rifle platoon commander, you know, in, uh, you know, in combat and in a, you know, and in a battle and the whole thing. So, I mean, we had a joke in my platoon, which was, um, you know, it's your favorite war movie and you're the star just because there would be, you know, at any moment, there was like a variety of situations you'd be in where, you know, you'd find yourself like in a building or something and you had to move down the street and you'd be shouting like everybody on me, you know, and you'd be like, I can't believe I just said everybody on me, but like, seriously, like everybody, get on me! Like we got to go right now. So you know, you sort of it was sort of surreal in that way. Um, um, you know, in all honesty, I mean, I'm almost seem silly saying this, but I, I think it's true. Uh, you know, if it, it felt like you were in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket in the way city scenes. I mean, that's pretty much exactly what it was like, um, fighting house to house like that. So you know, so it kind of that deployment you know, met up to met my expectations. But the thing that was strange about it was that I recognized it was an outlier experience. Usually that is not what a typical deployment is like.
1: So tell me about the second battle of Fallujah. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's obviously a day that's going to stick with you forever. Uh, but kind of take me through what happened that specific day.
0: Well, it wasn't a day. I mean, it was a month, uh, <laughs> more than a month. I mean, it was more than a month. Um, you know, we everybody knew, you know, the writing was sort of on the wall, you know, from the moment we got there um, into Iraq in June of four, that, um, you know, when we sh- when we showed up, the first battle had happened, the you know, the the ceasefire basically was predicated on the idea that the uh, Fallujah brigade, which was solely comprised of Iraqis, would take care of security inside of Fallujah, no coalition forces would be allowed in Fallujah. And that was sort of the, the band aid they placed over it. Well, of course, the Fallujah brigade, you know, was wound up being completely ineffective. Um, you know, Zarqawi and the Al Qaeda in Iraq guys took over Fallujah, and we weren't allowed inside of it. So in Al Anbar province, everything that was bad, you know, all the IEDs, all the insurgents, everything, they were all moving in and out of Fallujah. And when they were inside of Fallujah, they were able to move around and operate with sort of impunity. So it's very obvious, okay, something has to be done about Fallujah. And then there were sort of like these two variables. You know, the first was that the most of the First Marine Division was rotating out of country in September of 2004. Um, our battalion actually wasn't leaving until February of '05. We kind of showed up a little bit late, so we knew there was going to be this big rotation of troops in September. We also knew that the presidential election was in November, so we're like, okay, well, it's not going to happen before September because we got to get all of the you know new battalions in, and it's probably not going to happen in the month before the presidential election because no, you know, politically they don't want to deal with that if it if it doesn't work out well. So, you know, from literally from like, you know, the PFC up, everyone was like, okay, this battle is going to happen. And then there was going to be another rotation of troops, the one I was part of in February of 05. So everyone was like, all right, listen, this battle is going to happen between, you know, November and February uh, of that year. And that's the day, you know, and it wound up basically, you know, when Bush won his reelection, literally the next day, we got the orders that we were going into Fallujah. Wow. And so it sort of had, they pulled all of us into, Uh, They pulled all of us, you know, all the battalions that were the assault battalions into staging areas around Camp Fallujah outside the city for about, you know, 10 days to two weeks before the battle where we, you know, rehearsed, we got our orders, we, you know, refitted and that had, it had this real like second world war, you know, hitting the beach feel to it. I mean, we even talked like Wednesday day, all of our rehearsals were D plus one, D plus two, like you know, it had that, it had that vibe. They, they set, I remember them setting D-Day, you know, this is D-Day. And then like D minus two, all the chaplains were giving services in the camp. I mean, you know, platoon commanders the night before the battle, you know, all of us, you know, you know, like saying, all right, buddy, see you on the other side. If you know you were in Charlie company, I'm an alpha company, you know, like, you know, so it's sort of, you know, so you're going through those, those rituals and, you know, but they feel surreal because they're familiar just from everything you've seen in our culture, if that makes sense.
1: No, absolutely does. I mean, you know, it's it's laid out very well by you and, and very, you know, there's a lot of clarity to it. So I, I understand where you're coming from. Um, some people have labeled you as the most combat decorated American novelist in the post nine eleven generation. As I mentioned earlier, a silver star, bronze star, valor, and a purple heart. Um Tell me about the the engagement for those. Was it all the same one, or did they come on three different engagements? How does that all play out?
0: Well, I think, you know, like, uh, it's obvious to say, like, you know, they they hand out medals when, like, things don't really go right. (laughs) So, um, you know, I think the incidents surrounding the Silver Star were, you know, my, uh, you know, without going into a whole lot of detail that I'm worried will just sort of, like, confuse listeners who aren't looking at satellite imagery or maps. Um, but on the, on the second day of the battle, basically, our platoon was tasked with kind of going ahead of the battalion to, like, get a foothold for a big assault that was going to come the next day. So we kind of snuck ahead. Right, so how how like many pretty, people was that? How
1: many people were you leading up there?
0: Uh, There's 40, 46 of us. Okay. So a rifle platoon. Gotcha. And we had to, like, basically, we, like, occupied a ta- uh, we occupied a building. And we were going to kind of, as the whole battalion, which is like a thousand guys, was going to advance across this road in our company, which is 200. You know, we were going to be already ahead to kind of help guide them in, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, but what wound up happening was we basically, over the course of the day, got surrounded. Um, and the battalion kind of got pinned down. And so the assault was supposed to happen first thing in the morning. It didn't happen till the afternoon. And so we were surrounded, waiting for the assault to come. And so, you know, and then the assault came. So it was, you know, there was just sort of all hell breaking loose. Um, and so, um, you know, a number of guys from the platoon were, you know, for were decorated for events that occurred that day. Um, but, you know, you know, my platoon sergeant was shot through the head. A lot, you know, a lot of key people, um, got hurt. I think, you know, we, two out of, two out of the three squad leaders in our platoon, uh, were wounded that day, four out of the six fire team leaders. So we, you know, we, we had a pretty rough day of it. So, um, uh, you know, so you, but when, you, when you shake it out, it means that, uh, you know, they wind up, they wind up handing out a number of medals at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess, was that the first engagement where you suffered losses or, or casualties?
0: No, we had had, you know, we'd been, our platoon had been in some scrapes before that. Um, it was the most significant. Um, but you know, we had, you know, we'd had, we'd taken some wounded, like in skirmishes and, uh, we were in a firefight in Haditha. Uh, where one of, one of, uh, one of my guys lost his leg. And, um, so, you know, the platoon at that point, frankly, you know, when that battle happened for our battalion and, you know, I'll speak specifically to, to the platoon I was in, it was actually kind of the perfect time because we were about four and a half months into a seven month deployment. So it wasn't over yet, you know, we weren't smelling the barn as it were. Um but, you know, we'd been together, you know, for a while and, you know, and everyone had, you know, we all had a you know, fire you know, we all you know, we'd all had a number of firefights under our belt by that point. Um and we all kind of trusted each other and, you know, we were gelling really well. So when we went into that battle, it was uh you know, it was sort of like as a platoon we were kind of at the height of our powers.
1: What did casualties and even KIAs due to the due to the unit itself? Was it one of those things that galvanized it or did it kind of have a, a negative effect on them?
0: You know, our platoon was, we took a lot of wounded and we didn't have any Marines killed, thank God. So, um, you know, we, we at one point, you know, um, the day after we got surrounded, we fought all through that night. And by the time it was over, um, we started the day with 46. And I think it was 25 of us were combat affected by the end of the day, Everybody, you know, the reciprocal wow. had all been, been evac, but nobody died um so we had a few who came pretty pretty close um but uh no one died you know i think it you know there were you know, i was very proud of the way young the younger guys really stepped up you know because uh, what happened to us that was i think you know doubly trying was the whole platoon kind of got decapitated um you know frankly it just sort of threw through luck, I was, you know, like the only leader who stayed in place the whole, pretty much the whole time. Um, myself and one of the squad leaders, you know, almost across the board, as I mentioned, fire team leaders, squad leaders, I mean, guys came back and returned to duty. Um, but I think it was, uh, disruptive having, you know, leaders taken out like that. But at the same time, you, you saw people, you know, really stepping up in a way that was, uh, you know, that was, that was pretty remarkable.
1: Let's talk about that, that, day firefight that you're in because uh, you just to plug some other guests we've had matt eversman in black hawk down we know they were stuck in the city for 24 hours uh, nate self and the battle attacker gar was stuck on the top of a mountain in afghanistan with 19 rangers for the better part of 20 hours you know and when these guys recount these things it seems you know you lose a scope of time right i mean sometimes minutes feel like hours sometimes hours feel like days or even vice versa You know, hours only feel like they went by in the blink of an eye because there's so much going on uh, that you lose track of time. What was that whole engagement like for you when you look back on it? What stands out about, you know, that that day long firefight?
0: Yeah, I think that's certainly true about losing track of time or or you just have no you start to lose the conception of it. you know i can i mean you know, i can break down you know from the morning we you know we cross the road at you know 2:30 a.m. to when we get to foothold in this building to us strong pointing this building to the sun coming up to us seeing insurgents kind of moving around with impunity cuz they don't think anyone's that far south to us you know opening fire on them and then returning fire and then maneuvering around us to the company not coming in the morning to you know, uh, you know, a guy named Lance Corporal Brown getting shot. He got shot through the femoral, and we had to evac. You, you know, evac him. You know, like, and then there's like these very specific memories. You know, like I remember when Brown got shot. You know, there's, you know, there was like, you know, blood everywhere. It was a femoral bleed. And when we got after we got him evac um, and, and the same man says my platoon sergeant got shot through the head, and so we ran their evac. I remember there was blood all over this small room where we were trying to maneuver around, and this building we were in was a, it was like a Candy stores, like a grocers, and so we had stacked bags of salt like sandbags. So I remember cutting open those bags of salt and throwing them down on the ground so we wouldn't slip on all the blood, you know. But just like that image of like you know the, the salt blood, I really remember. Um, you know, I remember trying to get us out of the house because we got, finally there was this you know the whole company was assaulting in the afternoon and uh, i remember arguing with my company commander you know iris says a great guy but saying like why are we going it's two in the afternoon like they know exactly where we are like we are going to get cut to ribbons if we if we try to get out of this house um you know and you guys are going to cut to ribbons too like why don't we wait like four hours and do this at night and i'm saying sorry like we got to go and like having that argument on the radio um and i remember all the marines like watching I remember looking up and seeing like you know you know probably seven or eight guys all watching because they knew The outcome of that conversation, you know, that moment they felt could determine whether they lived or died. You know what I mean? Like, so there's these flashes of memory that are very, very clear to me. And then, you know, and then there's sort of periods of time that are a blur. You know, the way we got out of that house was we couldn't go out the one door because they had it dialed in. So we had some combat engineers with us and they uh, we came up with a plan to basically stack a bunch of explosives on the inside of the house and blow out the sidewall. So we blew out the sidewall. And then all went out that way, which they didn't have dialed in. Um, and that led us into, you know, an assault. We were assaulting up to a phase line deeper into the city now. And now we were relinking up with our company on the move. And um, But, you know, that assault went on for several hours well into the night. Um, and our platoon really got chewed up in that assault. But I, that whole assault is a blur to me. Um, but, you know, I remember very clearly losing my voice that night. So, you know, the second about, I had lost my voice from just so much shouting that day. Um, and I spent the rest of that footage about you know, month-long battle. I probably spent the next 10 days of it, um, you know, talking like this. I could like, you know, only talking basically like a, a hoarse whisper over the radio.
1: When you look back on it, do you ever wonder how you made it
0: out alive? Just luck. You know, it's all luck. Um, you know, I remember, I have a very distinct memory of in that assault, being on a knee on the radio, um, and you know we had tank, we had a section of tanks with us at that point. So you know I'm sitting like you know ten feet from a you know from an Abrams while it's just you know firing main gun round after main gun round. And I don't know if you've been next to an Abrams for like a, it's pretty damn loud. <laughs> and um and trying to hear on the handset of my you know Prick 119 you know those old radios trying to hear my company commander something I can't hear because I can't hear him. I don't know if he can hear me. And I'm like screaming into the radio. Uh, and I remember looking at the round, just trying to communicate him and watching like AK rounds kick up around me and my radio operator. Said, like, you see, know, like, you know, like luck. I mean, had that guy been a better shot, you know, like, I don't know if I'd be here, but just lucky lucky. Um, so, uh, you know, so. Uh, yeah, though, I look back and, uh, and, you know, wonder, yes, I'm sure it could have gone many, many different ways, you know, and I have friends for whom, they, you know, I did go a different way.
1: Well, it's funny. I mean, not funny is not the right word. It's just, we talk about it a lot, the randomness of combat. You know, there are people who do the right thing and still end up suffering the ultimate, the ultimate sacrifice. And then there are people who don't do the right thing and somehow come out unscathed or they make the wrong decision. And as you said, luck plays into it. I mean, it's just, there's nothing to account for anything uh, in combat. Everything we train for most of the times end up going off of the, go out the window, right? Like whatever plan you had going in, that all changes the minute the first bullet flies by your head. And so there is a certain amount of luck that is involved. But I, I, I hate the luck because it sounds like there was no plan ahead of time. You know what I'm saying? There, there was a plan. Uh, and I think a lot of that plays into it. I just think it's more random than luck
0: yeah it listen it's really more random i mean whether or not your unit is able to accomplish its mission it's not just luck right you know what i mean it's but whether or not you know you get shot doing that is a little bit of luck um so i mean I, like you know the you know what went on with our platoon and the fact that like younger guys were able to step up seamlessly into the positions of like non-commissioned officers and and they were able then to just like take the radio and uh and and and, and were competently able to like maneuver a squad or a fire team you know or the way you know our company my company commander was able to work with all three platoon commanders when we were spread out in the city and couldn't see one another um, but we were able to sort of intuit and understand what one another was doing. I mean, that's not luck. That's the fact that we had trained together and, you know, and already fought together for some months. Um, so yeah, so that certainly is not luck. Um, but, you know, but when you're sitting there and you're like, you know, in the, you know, in the, in the middle of the brawl, you know, whether or not, you know, you're the guy who gets shot, uh, you know, it can just be a little bit of luck.
1: Well, let's talk about your unlucky day because you do have a Purple Heart and it only happens if you're, as we just mentioned, unlucky. Uh, How does that whole thing go down?
0: Yeah, well first of all i will say you know i mean like you know there are people who have purple hearts and there are people who have purple hearts you know like my pro <laughs> you, know, I took, I, you know i took like i took some frag in the back and was returned to duty so i mean you know, there's guys who were shot through both legs and spent months and months in hospital so uh you know not to make too you know spectacular of that incident but i mean for, you know long and short i think it was like on the fourth or fifth day of the battle we were uh clearing through some houses and we were ahead of the company uh, again and they were kind of they've been clearing behind us and it hits some like stiffer resistance because we have saw little resistance we were up ahead we're clearing out this house and then from next door these guys start shooting at us and they're throwing grenades from the front yard into our front yard and roof to roof and so we wind up getting in this very sort of close quarters battle um and the guy who had become my replacement platoon sergeant uh, who's just sort of like a wild man, uh, ran into the house with four Marines to go clear it out. Um, and he got into a really close quarters thing with a, a couple of the insurgents in that house. He wound up getting getting uh, shot through the leg and the arm. Uh, and we had a couple more wounded. So anyways, this all goes down. And at the end of it, it winds up with me in the street. And we th- think we've killed all the guys in this building, um, but we're not sure. And we're trying to run the, the medevac is now coming for our wounded. Uh, and it was a AAV, which is one of these, you know, armored personnel carriers, you know, our amphibious vehicles. And it pulls up, and it's got the troop compartments like open at the top. The ramp goes down. I, you know, I'm helping load up the wounded that I'm talking. You know, I talk to the track commander, like, all right. He's like, you got everyone? Yeah, we got everyone. The ramp's going up, and I see this guy from the rooftop is insurgent. And this is, you know, one of these very clear images. So the the Amtrak is parked next to the building he is on the rooftop and I see like his dark silhouette stand up and he kind of just lobs his shot. Uh, it was a grenade and he goes, he's trying to lob it into the open, uh, troop compartment hatches. And I just watch, him watching the grenade. I'm right next to am at the ramp, the back ramp of this thing. And I remember watching and had that grenade landed in the, you know, would have killed everybody inside the troop compartment, but it doesn't land in the troop compartment. It bounces, it lands between the Amtrak and the building, which is sort of right where I was standing. So I like kind of, turn away to run the grenade blows up and you know and, and i took some of the frag and, you know in the back kind of right 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 underneath my body armor
1: was it reactionary for you or was it like you were watching it in slow motion happen
0: it was like watching in slow motion watching in slow motion and you know and wondering like
1: is he really going to throw this thing
0: know, he, <laughs> no he'd, throw, oh. he'd thrown it he thrown it it was actually one of these like I've never been this close to a grenade before. I wonder how these things really worked. i like, frankly, the type of idea, you know, like how big is this gonna be? You know what I mean? Cause if it's really big, you know, I'm fucked. Um, if it's not too big, I'm, I think I might be far enough away where I'll be okay. Um, so I went off and, you know, just a bunch of like, you know, you know, it felt like having someone like take a handful of pebbles and throw them at your back as hard as I could. Um, and then, you know, I reached up and you know, Mold, mess of blood and stuff like that but you know again it was you know uh you know they they, they passed me up and i was you know i, I never left so you know per, not all purple hearts are per, you know not all there's purple hearts and then there's purple hearts
1: there is and, and, you know again uh and it's not to uh put one more importance over the other and i get your point i mean there, are you know it's a sentiment that's been echoed several times not Unfortunately, you know, we got to a point in the war where awards started being handed out because people showed up and it it devalues the award for everybody who has it. You know, I mean, if everybody has a a bronze star, then it's not really special anymore.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I mean, I have strong opinions about this, but my you know, the thing I found in the Marines, I actually found almost almost differently that the awards had been, you know, and the cultures are maybe a little bit different, but. The Marine Corps culture was so far sometimes on the other end, which is well, we have to make sure no one ever gets an award that they don't deserve. That you know, like a lot of Valor Awards, you know, I wrote up a lot of guys for Valor Awards, and the awards process was, you know, it took two two, three years for a guy to get a bronze star for Valor. That's nuts. And so you know, and it's nuts because what's sad. Is that the award gets handed out, and the guys like not a single person who was there with them sees them get the award? Right. You know, I mean, nothing. So it, it, it kind of loses its meaning. I mean, you know, there were army units I knew of where, uh, when I later in my career worked with special forces, and the policy was like all the awards have to be in by this date, and they all have to be processed so that you know when we come off of you know our post deployment leave, we're having an awards ceremony, and guys are going to get their awards um, in front of you know their teammates. And like that's how it should be and frankly the marine corps was, has has been i think it seems to be really bad about that yeah. um i mean awards and, very are- stin- and very stingy you know i'll just say last piece like my criteria is i kind of watched awards and orthodontics my criteria is always that you know what i was good i wanted to get a guy the most award. i wanted to get him the biggest decoration i could possibly get him for what he did just to the point where, if he would stay in a formation and not be and not feel embarrassed by it, like if he would stay in a formation and everyone's whispering and saying, like, this is BS, then you shouldn't get the award. But if right. I can stay in a formation and no one says a thing about it, so yeah, fair enough, then he should get that award.
1: No, I, I think that's logical. I mean, you know, my, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. I, I just, I remember my first deployment, um, the one with the SF, you know, they gave me a Bronze Star on the way out. And I felt like I'd earned that one. I mean, you know, the yeah. amount of work I did and the, and the job that I did for 15 months and how long I did it for and what, you know, I went through and survived and everything else. I felt that that warranted that. Now, when I went back to Iraq the second time, five years later, I was in 04 at the time and I worked up on division staff and uh-huh they had some policy that all field grades and above got at least a bronze star.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. And
1: and I'm sitting here going, I did nothing to earn this. Like I don't even want, like I told them, I don't want it. I'd rather you give it to one of my soldiers. I'd rather you give me an award. I don't have that's lower than this. If you're going to force me to get an award, I didn't earn anything for at least give me a new ribbon. You know what I'm saying? As opposed to give me one I already have, but it it got to be that bureaucratic with with the awards. And I'm with you. I mean, I, I think that you want them to have value, not only for the individual, but for everybody across the board, so that you know what the standard is to get one, um, and that it's not something yeah. you, you purposely achieve, it just happens to you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm my philosophy, my, my ultimate philosophy, I think we should just get rid of the awards. Um, I think it's, it's sort of, you know, what Bobby Lee said about, uh, I think he said when someone asked him if there should be a Medal of Honor for people who fought in the Army of Northern Virginia, he said, "Merely saying that you were in the Army of Northern Virginia is the greatest distinction a man could have." So there were never any valor awards, no mention in dispatches, just nothing. And part of me feels like that. I think, you know, I think that the award system can sometimes distort the ex what the experience is really about. You know, because at the end of the day, too, like you know, the people you care are going to know what you do. The people you care about will know. I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I feel like, I just feel like in my experience, I've seen awards create more heartache um, than anything else.
1: I agree. I mean, and I don't want to harp on the, uh, the philosophy of the whole thing, because again, different, you know, rational people can have different viewpoints on this whole thing. But sure. Of course. Let, let's get to one more award of yours. And that is the bronze star for valor. Um, you know, those again, typically aren't handed out like candy. So, it obviously was something that was uh, worthy of, of the efforts of it. What happened that day?
0: Um, this was, I think it was a, com- a combination of, uh, of incidents. But I was, you know, later in my career, I was a Marine Special Operator in Afghanistan. And so our team, which is about a dozen of us, were responsible for, uh, we were the combat advisors to an Afghan commando battalion. Um, so there, was, uh, there were a couple of raids we went on, um, which were pretty dicey. Um, so I think that factored into it. You know, one where we, you know, we wound up landing in a, a hot LZ, um, and there was one particularly bad ambush we were in, um, where we lost a soldier who was from the special forces team that uh, that was uh, our, our our sister team, and uh, and so uh, you know I so I think sort of you know leading the team through that is is why I, you know I got that award. Um, yeah.
1: When you look back on Iraq versus Afghanistan, what stands out to you as far as not only the wars themselves, but the environment and everything else? And, you know, obviously, to a certain extent, these wars are still going on.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, the years that I was in Iraq, you could feel that the people you're fighting against were sort of much more uh, ideologically zealous. I mean, I remember remember watching, uh, uh, you know, an al-Qaeda and Iraq guy run out into the street with an AK and spray an Abrams tank. I mean it's you know it's great it's very brave and courageous to go take on an a, uh, you know an Abrams with an AK. Well, it's also a
1: suicide mission
0: <laughs> yeah and I remember watching the watching the Abrams like swing over its coax and you know fire a main gun around at the guy I mean you know, he just disappeared and I like, that was pretty stupid you know you never you would never in a, you, would, you know you would never in a million years see that happen in Afghanistan you know you know the Afghans were you know the Taliban like and they're smart. I mean, they've been doing this for a long, long time and they were in no hurry to die. Um, so, you know, they were, you know, they would ambush you and then literally you could set your watch to it like 25 minutes later, um, they'd be gone because they knew it would take you like 25 minutes to get air support on station and then pff, they're gone. I mean, they're not messing around. They're gone. Um, so, you know, a lot of that, you know, you could feel, you could feel the difference. I, you know, I liked, uh, I liked Afghanistan just on a personal level more than Iraq Um you know, I kinda of, I think a lot of you know a lot of people I know have sort of echoed this sentiment who who served in both places. There's just something uh you know, Afghanistan's sort of this like unreasonable place. You know, if you're up in the northeast the mountains are unreasonable. If you go down south, like the desert is unreasonable. The fact they've been fighting a war for forty years is unreasonable. You know, and the people are sort of like kind of cheerful through it all, and like that, and you know, this sort of almost like this optimism to them that is like completely unreasonable. Um, so, sort of all those contrasts, that sort of makes I always made Afghanistan that a place I, you know, I, I really liked. Um, not to say that I hated Iraq, but you know, but Iraq kind of didn't necessarily have that same, uh, you know, didn't endear itself to me in the same way.
1: It's an interesting viewpoint. I, I Honestly, I've, in all the podcasts I've done, I've never heard that, um, or at least never heard it described that way. I mean, it makes total sense. But, uh, you know, uh, to me, and I only did short tours in Afghanistan. I was only there for a couple of weeks here and there. Like, I never had any extended period of time there. Um, both of my, you know, uh, long tours were, were in Iraq. Uh, I always kind of feared Afghanistan more than Iraq. I felt like I knew the enemy better in Iraq than I did in Afghanistan. I felt like there was less, even though there was more of the enemy and, and there were more challenges in an urban environment. I just felt like it was a more winnable scenario than the mountains of Afghanistan.
0: Oh, well, it probably was. I mean, you know, um, but you know, I, I, you know, and maybe, maybe I'm skew. I skew that way because, when I was in Afghanistan, I spent a lot more time with Afghans. I mean, you know, when I was in Iraq, I was a rifle platoon commander. Um, you know, I did some work with Iraqi partner forces, but not with any real depth. I mean, in Afghanistan, I mean, I was, you know, living, fighting alongside, spending every day with Afghans. Right. Um. So, got to know them pretty well. Um. But uh. But you know, I mean, Afghanistan is sort of it's sort of a, a really singular country. I mean, for you know not only, you know, culturally, geographically, but just, you know, the amount of like suffering that you've seen roll through Afghanistan, it's it's sort of to see a culture that has endured all of that. I mean, you you kind of almost have to stand there in a sense of awe um, to understand how people have kind of lived and continue to live in those conditions.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, there are two Um, villagers who could live a mile apart and never see each other their entire lives.
0: Yeah. And it's, a, and it's a, you know, and it's a society that's completely different. I mean, you go to the south, it's completely different than the northeast, and which is completely different than the west. So, and I was fortunate, you know, I traveled around Afghanistan. I did deployments in different places, and got you know, and kind of got a feel for it. Um, so I, you know, I, uh, if I had to, you know, to go back for a long chunk of time, I would prefer to go back to Afghanistan than to Iraq.
1: Well, you actually did go back uh, as a novelist, but I want to get to what happened before then. How did you ultimately know that your career was over in the military?
0: You know, I just sort of got to the point where I said to myself, you know, is this the you know I I mean I had a very positive experience in the military. Um, uh, you know, I mean it was very hard, but I you know I, I felt like I, I was able to do the things that I wanted to do and was able to do work that was meaningful to me, and uh, and hopefully you know contribute to the people. So I you know I felt fulfilled. Um, and I just sort of hit a point where I was like, you know, is this the only thing I want to do with my life? Because I'm at that time now where I need to, you know, either stay in or get out. If, because if I want to do something else with my life, this is – I'm probably at an age now where I need to go do that. You know, I'm not the guy just out of college anymore. You know, I've been at it for eight years. So, um, you know, and I, I came to the conclusion that there was other things I wanted to do in life I wanted to write. Um, and that, uh, you know, I, I didn't necessarily want to sort of ascend through the ranks and become a field grade officer and all of that. Uh, and so, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult decision, but I decided it was time for me to, uh, you know, hang up the spurs, as it were.
1: Was the writing thing something that was there in you before your experience in the Marine Corps? Or did something, you know, in your experience in deployment say, hey, I want to write about this?
0: No, you know, my mother was a writer, so I was always around it. But I didn't go in like, oh, I'm going to go in the Marines, so I want to write about it. Uh, you know, I just went the Marines, so I want to go in the Marines. And then, you know, I decided I wanted to write. And then you sort of look at, well, what am I going to write about? Um, And having had those experiences sort of gives you kind of an undeniable topic. So, well, you can obviously write about this. So, um, and so, you know, so I started trying when I got out. I didn't write at all when I was in the military.
1: When you decided to write, you know, your first of two novels, uh, I I mean, did you know what topic you were gonna write on? Did you know what you were gonna get to? Or is that something that kind of, there was an incident that
0: happened that was the, the impetus for it? You know, you sort of like you have a sense. I, you know, I mean, listen. Everyone writes, you know, differently. Um, you know, all novelists work differently, but you know, I had a sense of what the book was about. You know, in Green on Blue, Green on Blue is basically it's a story of an American who's killed by an Afghan, but it's all told from the perspective of the Afghan. So I sort of wanted to go and tell. You know, I don't want to tell a story, that's almost like a parable. It's kind of like the Afghan. I want to try to tell a story of the Afghan War, but in micro. You know so there's like one american there's one tribe uh there's this one village and valley that they're fighting over you know i sort of wanted to like put all of it in one place i mean you know it's a little bit like um you know the thin red line with Guadalcanal. you know it's sort of it's all happening in this one place um and that was sort of the ambition of the book. And then you know, you just sit down and you show up every day, and you you know, you see what the characters are going to do and how the story is going to unfold. And a big part of writing is just showing up and doing the work every single day. And if you sit there and you do the work, you know, you start to see things. You know, you start to see the themes of the book emerge, and you start to you know, you start to understand how it all fits together. Um, and you know, and that's the really rewarding part. I mean, it's you know, a novel I think is like kind of like a puzzle in many ways. And when you're just getting started. It's sort of like you're holding up, you're in your mind, you can see a piece of the puzzle. You know? And as a writer, you're like, this is the piece. Now I'm going to describe this piece to you. This piece has a round edge and then a square corner. And this is what the piece looks like. And you sit there on the page and you're describing the piece. And then you describe another piece and then another piece. And then as you go, you start to see how they fit together. And that's kind of what's exciting and really pleasurable. Um, and, uh, you know, and if the writing is going well, you'll, you'll see the entire image that these pieces that these pieces form into. Um, and so, you know, so that goes through, you know, through all the books I've written.
1: Did you know that green on blue was going to be as successful as it was? I mean, did you feel like you had something or is it just, uh, you threw a kind of caution into the wind and said, Hey, let's see what
0: happens. Um, you know, I, you know, I was glad that it's you know, that it I was glad that it connected with people. Um, you know, I think you're always, you're, you're always going out there with a lot of faith. I mean, it's a lot of work up front writing a book, so you have to really like writing and, um you know, and then you hand it to your publisher and, uh, you know, and you hope that the publisher publishes it well.
1: If green on blue didn't go so well, would you have written dark of the crossing?
0: Yes. You know, green on blue is not my first book. My first book I wrote, uh, was never published. Oh so, really? Yeah. So, um, so, you know, when I think once you're, you know, I think, you know, just to kind of get into the, if you want to get into the mechanics of being a writer, you know, I think you sort of have to declare yourself a writer and start doing the work and as much as you can i mean this is easier said than done psychically separate the work from the business meaning you have to show up to work every day whether or not the business is going well and you know people are buying your books for you know you're doing book deals for nice sums of money or your books are selling well you know you kind of can't let how that's going affect how the creative work is going Makes um, sense. and um you know and the way the publishing industry works, you know, from the time you sell a book to the time it's published, I mean, it's a long time. It's you know, usually 18 months. So, um, so, you know, so if you were always to be sitting there, you know, waiting to see how a book would do before you started the next book, you would spend a lot of your career just sitting around waiting.
1: All right. So let me phrase it this way. You had finished, uh, green on blue. Did you immediately tackle dark at the crossing right after, or did you wait? Or-
0: yeah. No, pretty much. I was, I was, I, I like to always, I find the best way to, you know, alleviate the anxiety of how one project is going to do is to just start the next one. Um, so I started pretty quickly after I had you know, sold green on blue. I think I sold green on blue and like, no, I want to say like, yeah, in like November of 2013. And I probably started dark at the crossing within, a, within the month. Um, so, um, yeah. So I'm always, you know, I'm always trying to work a few projects ahead.
1: Uh, as far as, you know, the books are concerned, but you've also have essays and fiction appear in the New Yorker, the Atlantic, uh, New Republic. Uh, you were writing for Esquire magazine when you actually went back to Iraq in 2016. Tell me about that
0: experience. Um, you know, I had a, when I, was, I was living in Istanbul and I have a good friend who uh, was a journalist and he um uh, for the, for the New York times. And he had covered the third Fallujah battle, uh, for the times. And so we were at dinner and I was just sort of asking about him about, it. he'd come back. I was like, how was it? You know, like, tell me about it. And we were talking about it. And I just at one point said, God, you know, I'd love to go back. And he said, well, why don't you come back? Like, I'll help set it up. You know, we can get you back in. It shouldn't be too hard. And so that kind of started the idea of, wow, maybe I should go back. And so, um, and so Esquire sent me back, and uh, you know, it, was, it was an interesting time to be there because right when I showed up to Kota Fallujah, just sort of by coincidence, it was when the Mosul offensive started. So the story wound up being kind of one part's going retroactively to a battle in which I'd fought uh, you know, more than 10 years before um, to then traveling up north and, uh, you know, and witnessing firsthand kind of the latest battle uh, in Mosul as the Iraqi army was pushing out ISIS.
1: Does that experience going back there, did it stir up a lot of emotions? Did it kind of uh, surprise you in any way? I mean, how what was that like when you get back there on that ground that you stood on and, you know, watch blood of your brother spill?
0: I mean, the thing that's, that, that struck me the most was how little it had changed. Huh. You know, and that it was, um, you know, and I wrote about this in the piece that, you know, you kind of have cities that are sort of like these layered cities like a you know like a rome or an or an istanbul or you know where it's just you can see like that you know people have come and built upon and built upon and built upon and built upon upon what the others have built upon and the thing was Fallujah was sort of like the reverse it was like you had seen it was like a city that was kind of defined by layers of destruction Mm -hmm. so you walk around like that was destroyed in the first battle that was destroyed in the second that was in the third um and so you know and i you know and i went through you know the iraqis were escorting were very you know, very enthusiastic to have me go see some of the ISIS prisons and we had walked into the Al Qaeda prisons in 04. So it was, you know, it, you know, not a lot, not a lot had changed. And it was, you know, and it was interesting to go back and like stand, you know, I was, I, you know, went back to the house where I said that, you know, we were surrounded in ambush and I went back to that house, which was still standing. And, you know, just to go, you know, be on that ground was sort of interesting again, you know, and poignant to, you know, you know, have you know taken those views one more time um but it was different than you know you, you know it's sort of an old story of like you know like the guys from vietnam who would go back in the 80s when the war was over you know it's sort of different to go back to a place when the war's not over
1: yeah i you mean know, it's, it's yeah. still
0: going on so it's this experience is still continuing and um so it's not necessarily like a closure it was more sort of like uh you know it wasn't like a period at the end of the sentence i said was more like kind am of like a comma
1: now part of me would love that experience um, to be able to go back to the places where I got in gunfights and the places where I was hit by an IED, and because as, as you talked about, you know, there are some memories you have that are, have such clarity, right? Like you can specifically see everything about that that spot and remember what you saw and what you did and everything else. And uh, to stand back there, I, I think it's got to be a surreal experience, but there's certainly got to be something cathartic about
0: it. Yeah, I, I would say I don't. I didn't find it quite as you know cathartic as you might have thought, just because it's still going on. You know, I I could imagine like you know if I was walking through Fallujah and you know, you know the the grass was green and the you know the city was buzzing and people were smiling and you know my children were with me and I was saying you know this is where Daddy fought and it was this vibrant place and my cathartic um but i was walking through a place that looked exactly like it did 10 years ago and <laughs> had just been leveled by isis and you know everywhere i was you know any time i would you know take a step this way or that way you know the iraqi police i was like be careful be careful like there's uxo over there you know you could get blown up like i don't know we think they're booby traps still so you know you felt you on in some respects it just actually felt like i was in a time machine i was back in 2004 again you know like it, it, i remember at one point i was standing on the roof of the, that house and i write about this I'm standing on the roof of the house where we've been surrounded, and I'm looking because I'm like looking because, you know, at some of the views I had that day because I spent that whole day, you know, just like staring at the same views. So I sort of remembered what the views looked like, and there was this little cinder block wall. I mean it's literally as high as your knee maybe. I'm like, holy shit. And I look at this little crumbled wall, and I had spent like 20 minutes like literally crouched behind that wall trying not to get shot because that was the only bit of cover I could find, and that little crumbling wall was still there. Wow. You know, and it was just sort of, you know, so it wasn't like a spectacular, you know, uh, you know reference point that I was looking at. It was like that little wall is still there. I can't believe it. You know what I mean? And I, mean, I feel like I came all the way here just to see like a half dozen crumbled cinder blocks that haven't moved in a decade.
1: Do you think you'd be as good as a writer as you are without your military experience?
0: Yeah, I, I, I just think it becomes who you are. You know what I mean? Like you can't, I can't extricate myself from those experiences anymore, you know? Would you be as good of a person if, you know, you hadn't been raised by the parents you've been raised by or, you know, whatever. Like there's certain sure. core experiences yeah. that is at a level you just can no longer unweave yourself from. Um, you know, I don't think those but I don't think it's like those experiences define me. Uh, they just kind of, you know, are a part of me. Like I, they're seamless to who I am, just like any other variety of experience, just like the fact that, you know, I have a brother, you know, or, you know, I have kids. It's just it just sort of becomes part of who you are.
1: Forgive the simplistic nature of this question, but I feel like just getting to know you and talking to you, that I'll get a pragmatic answer out of it. But when you look back on your military experience, is it fair to say that you won the war you fought in?
0: You know, when I, you know, when I joined, I I had a very, you know, asked me at the beginning, why did I join the military? You know, I also had this like very keen sense that, uh, you know, that I kind of wanted to, and I mentioned this, like, you know, I wanted to have a job, whether I was good at my job or bad at my job really mattered. And I didn't mean that in a grandiose, like American policy sense. I meant that I always sort of have had this like abstract notion that there was this group of, you know, guys who, you know, might, you know, benefit from like a good leader or having a leader who, you know, had some of the benefits I had growing up. And, you know, and I came from like a, a well-to-do family, you know, I got to go to great schools. Um, I, you know, my you know, parents were super supportive. Just, you know, I, I had, I grew up with, you know, every benefit you could imagine someone having in this country. You know, I, was a, I was definitely a fortunate son. And so in my mind, I was, I was like, you know what, like if there's going to be a war, you know, I think it's sort of right that the people who, you know, who have benefited the most from this country should kind of ante up and, uh, and participate. Um, know that's sort of the extent of my decision in it. So, you know, whether the board was right or what it was wrong, you know, I'm 23 years old. So my agency is, am I going to go, or am I not going to go? If I'm not going to go in my mind, it was always, well, if I don't go, there's this group of guys and they're not going to have whatever, you know, talents that I might possess or whatever advantages I've been given. Yeah. And maybe that's, you know, maybe it's e- egotistical of me to say, uh, you know, I don't say it's because I'm a great guy, but I just always feel like, hey, I should try to make that contribution. So to me, the war was always about like my platoon or the special operations team I was in and trying to do right by those guys. Um, and so, you know, in that respect, I feel like I won my war because, you know, I feel like, you know, if you were to talk to a lot of those guys, you know, they would say, I, you know, that I did right by them, um, you know, and we're still all close. You know, and when we you know we talk about those days and decisions that were made on those days, um, you know, but as I get older, I think it's sort of important to be vocal about the, the things that we screwed up in those wars, which were plenty um, and that we not make those mistakes again.
1: Well, and, and that's the, the poignant difference, really. And that's why I phrased the question. Do you think you won your war? Because even though we all fought the same war, everybody's war was different. Everybody's specific war was different. And. It's an important distinguishment to make simply because the parameters for which you measure whether you won your war or not, some guys have just said, I got out alive, I got my folks out alive. That was a win for me. You know, whether the mission itself failed, whether, uh, you know, the the grand scheme of what they were trying to accomplish, the military trying to accomplish failed, didn't matter to them. Yeah. They got their guys out, they got themselves out, and that's good enough to consider it a win. But in, in other cases, you know, you talk about units that <clears throat> took massive casualties, and guys who were part of all that, and, and they, they, they beam about the fact that, hell yeah, we won the war. I mean, you know, we took it to them. I and mean, even though we lost some guys, they, they have that sort of viewpoint. So I, I just I was interested to hear your answer, and, and I think it fits what you have described and the fact that you control what you can control. And, and from that standpoint, yeah, I mean, you took care of it. But it is also worthwhile mentioning, and I do the same thing, You know, the people who fought in the war are the best people to tell us whether we did it right or wrong, not the people who sat on the sidelines. And, and that that was always a big problem for me along the way.
0: Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, I, I think I alluded to, like, you know, before in this one firefight. you know, we wound up surrounded, uh, you know, being on the radio with my company commander and feeling like every Marine, you know, who wasn't shooting was, like, looking at me and listening to this conversation because they knew how that conversation went was going to, you know, determine, in you know, maybe whether they lived or died. You know, and I can thinking through my military career. I can think of about like a, I don't know, about a half dozen of those type of radio calls where I could, could glance up and see a lot of the guys they were listening in because they knew, you know, how this radio call went was going to have a significant impact on their safety or their life or what whatever. And you know, I'm glad I was there on the radio. You know, I don't take that back. You know, I uh, so you know, I don't regret being there. So I'm, you know, so f- for me, I guess that's winning cause I don't have any regrets. Um, but I also think too, it's like, you know, no, I mean, you know, nobody wins in a war. No, you know, I mean, everybody loses, you know, I mean, so it's, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I, 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 I'm definitely not a pro war guy and I'm, I'm definitely not, you know, that's one who would thump his chest and advise that, you know, war is a great solution to our problems. Um, and I think that, um, you know, but, you know, if you are like a man of a certain age, you know, or woman these days of a certain age and your country goes to war, like you have a choice. Are you going to participate? Or are you not going to participate? And you'll always remember how you chose. And so I don't regret my choice to go to war. You know, I do regret that I had to choose, though. You know, I wish like our leaders had done a better job steering us away from those wars so that, you know, maybe my time in the Marine Corps could have just been spent, you know, kicking my heels up in Okinawa. Um and, you know, and hopefully, you know, as our generation gets older, when those choices fall to us, you know, we will do a better job and steer the younger generation out of having to make that choice.
1: When you bring that point up, let me ask you, the guy you switched assignments with who took San Diego, you ever talk to him? You ever find out what happened to him?
0: No, you know, you know, we weren't really that close. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I wish him well.
1: <laughs> I just you always wonder how the other half lives, right? So, yeah. All right. So what's next for you now? I and mean, what are you working on?
0: Um, well, I have another, I have another book that comes out in the fall, uh, which is a novel, and then uh, and I have a book of journalism that comes out in uh, the spring of 2019. So, um, you know, just always, you know, can, can
1: you clue okay. us in? Is it military related or is it a totally different topic?
0: Um, well, the journalism is sort of stuff having to do with Syria and Iraq and Turkey, um, where I was, and you know, and the novel is. Um, is sort of it's about a love triangle, but it's kind of told uh, in the same construct of like a book, like, like The English Patient. Okay. Um, so I wouldn't say it's a military story, but you know, but it, most of it takes place in the burn, burn ward of San Antonio. So um, so the characters have you know relationships with the military.
1: Well, Elliot, I mean, listen, it's a, it's an incredible tale that you've told. And I, I know it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about their experiences and why they got their medals. So I, I appreciate you, you know, even at a minimum, uh, spending the time with us to to share those stories because they're impactful for those who, who don't have those experiences, especially the civilians listening to understand kind of, you know, the, the ins and outs of why these things happen. So I, I certainly appreciate you doing that. I, again, I, I know it's uncomfortable at times. People don't like to talk about the things that they've accomplished and why they got them. And, and that's certainly a part of what makes our job uh, you know we don't want the we don't need the awards we don't we, we don't do it for thanks we don't do it for praise it's it's comes with the territory that we've chose something different so again uh, I, I certainly appreciate you spending uh the time with us to tell us those stories and obviously you know again the novels green on blue uh and dark at the crossing uh you, you, i assume you can get them at uh amazon barnes and noble all the other places
0: anywhere fine books for souls
1: yeah there you go <laughs> so again thank you for your time your your honesty uh, I, I think it was a great discussion and certainly uh we, we appreciate you being on the hazard ground
0: hey my absolute pleasure you've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by mark zeno and produced by matt pascarella if you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com and if you like the show Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.